You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Now, as the Israel-Hamas war devastates Gaza, it can be tough for us on the other side of the world to keep up with what's happening from day to day. When there's an explosion or other event, we'll sometimes hear conflicting reports about what caused it, where it came from, who was responsible. When videos circulate on social media, it can be hard to tell what's legitimate, what's been edited or misrepresented. Our next guests are here to help us avoid misinformation coming out of a conflict like this and to better understand how reporters and news organizations handle coverage in a war zone. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you encountered questionable material on social media about what's happening in the Middle East right now? Do you have people in your circle on social media who share things that you think are suspect? Where do you go to double-check information? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Emily Vraga is an associate professor at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota, where she holds the Don R. and Carol J. Larson professorship. She studies misinformation and how people respond to news on contentious issues. She's a graduate of UW-Madison. Emily, thanks for joining us in the studio. It's great to be here. And Lindsay Palmer is an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at UW-Madison. She researches international news and war reporting. Lindsay, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you. It's great to be here. Lindsay, let's start with you and and how news organizations try to gather reliable information in a, a dangerous zone where there are often interested parties who may not want them to have that information. What are some of the main challenges? Well, I think the challenges really depend on exactly where the, the journalists are able to go in the first place. Um, so if we're thinking about news gathering, um, in person, right, in the middle of a conflict zone, you know, foreign correspondents are not the people who are are sitting back at headquarters, right? Um, then the very first challenge is where am I allowed to go? Where can I actually physically be? And when, um, you know, particular governments and, and militaries and militant groups are restricting uh, movement across borders um, or within, you know, particular locations, that's the first challenge, you know, foreign correspondents can't cover news when they've been barred from from going in and telling the story. Emily, uh, that's the challenge at the information gathering uh, end. On the other side of things, it's very easy to uh, promote misinformation. You don't need those permissions. You can do it quickly. How big a challenge is that uh, arms race, in a sense, between the forces of misinformation and the people trying to gather real news? I think you hit exactly on it. It happens so very quickly that people are not necessarily stopping and thinking through, do I know this to be true? What work have I done to make sure that this is something that I want to be sharing, that I want to be associating with, and instead just sharing out of identity, out of horror, out of wanting to do something, even if it's something as simple as, as sharing and saying, look how awful this is. Lindsay, uh, how important is it for news outlets to have these actual reporters on the ground in these areas uh, to get this legitimate information out to the rest of the world? It remains so incredibly important. I think in in an era where, you know, we've been in this era for a while now, right, where we can just circulate information, we can, unfortunately, you know, people can create very convincing, entirely fake videos, and they can also share half-truths, right, and, and, you know, information that hasn't been properly investigated and verified yet. In this environment, we need the people who've been trained 
um, to, to gather information, to present it as fairly as possible, um, you know, from their perspective on the ground, we need these people, I think, now more than ever. Emily, when we are on whatever social media platform we might uh, prefer to use, how do you recommend we take a moment, look at a story and say before, especially before I share this, uh, what do I do to make sure that this is legit? The most important thing you can do is taking that moment. And so before you even get on the social media site, when you know there's going to be a lot of misinformation circulating, reminding yourself that I deeply care about accuracy, that I see my role as promoting high quality information can help you when you get there and you see all this emotional content coming at you and it, you really just want to get engaged with it. And then the second thing is to, to go someplace else and, and verify. Do a little bit of almost news reporting of your own. Look at a bunch of different news sites. Look at uh, intergovernmental agencies who are committed to getting the best information out there. And if they're all reporting the same thing, you can have a lot more faith that that is what we know to be true. We're talking about misinformation and how we gather legitimate information in a war zone. Emily Braga is with us from the University of Minnesota. Lindsay Palmer with UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts or questions. That's 800-642-1234. Let's look a little more specifically now at the, the conflict that, uh, that brought this discussion to the fore uh, in Gaza between uh, Israel and Hamas. Lindsay, does anything stand out to you as uh, unique or particularly challenging for that foreign correspondent working uh, in uh, in Gaza and nearby? Well, unfortunately, um, you know, there, there's not a whole lot about this that does stand out. It's been challenging for foreign correspondents to cover um, what happens in Gaza, you know, for many, many years in 2008 when there were, you know, rockets and, and missiles being um, launched in that area. There were very few foreign correspondents who were able to gain access to cover uh, the conflict. It's it's kind of, um, in many ways, um, just the the kind of latest articulation. I think of a, a very long history. Emily, as you watch uh, stories, uh, videos, often fake videos or very old videos repackaged as breaking news, what kind of what kind of things are you seeing specific to Gaza right now when it comes to uh, misinformation? So I think uh, two things that I see a lot of is, one, a lot of things taken out of context. So taking a video of a movie and saying, look, this is people faking deaths in, um, in the conflict. So making sure that we recognize where that content's coming from, and that's where a, a reverse image search would help you really find that quite easily. And then second, because it there's often a language barrier for us in the United States, people saying this is translated into something that it is totally not. And so uh, playing up this idea that we don't know what they're saying and using that to misrepresent what people are actually saying. Lindsay, has that uh, the social media misinformation and disinformation element changed things for foreign co correspondents? Are they looking over their shoulder in some ways at what stories are being told about the stories they're trying to cover? I think absolutely so. I think that that you know, for a while now, in in war correspondence, um, you know, the different journalists who go and, and cover these conflicts are not only sort of battling with battling in a in a metaphorical sense, mm -hmm. of course, with with the challenges um, that they face on the ground. You know, trying to kind of dodge bullets um, and and sort of get the the story out there while staying alive. They're also constantly having to sort of check social media for this misinformation 
um, trying to sort of anticipate it. They can also be targeted because of misinformation that circulates about them and their networks. Um, they, they are expected to also, you know, tweet um, and, and sort of put information out there and maintain a presence on social media. So I think it just kind of adds several layers of, of stress and danger to their jobs. Lindsay, you mentioned Emily uh, uh, tweeting, uh, now X, of course, Twitter. As you watch platforms and how they handle uh, how information spreads, uh, social media is not uh, well known for uh, keeping false information from flowing. What are you watching uh, on X and other platforms when it comes to how they deal with these issues? So I think it's it's a real challenge. X has gotten a lot of good criticism for some of the steps they have taken, um, especially getting rid of some of the teams that are dedicated to trust and safety. I think that that's a real problem and we need to see a lot more investment in content moderation across platforms. Uh, platforms need to be taking some of the resources they have and dedicating it to making sure that the people on their platform are safe and the information flowing through those spaces is as accurate as possible. We're talking to journalism professors Lindsay Palmer from UW-Madison and Emily Vraga from the University of Minnesota about how we as news consumers can evaluate news coverage of the Israel-Hamas war, avoid misinformation, and understand how actual reporting is happening in a conflict zone like that. You could join in at 800-642-1234. How do you follow news about what's going on in Gaza? Where do you go where you think you're finding reliable information? Do you see a lot of suspicious things coming across your social media feeds? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue our conversation about misinformation, disinformation, and media coverage of the Israel-Hamas war and what's going on in Gaza now. Our guests today are Emily Vraga, journalism professor from the University of Minnesota, and Lindsay Palmer, journalism professor at UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234. How do you evaluate what you see on social media when it comes to uh, breaking news like this? Uh, with controversial arguments surrounding it at the time. What questions do you have for our guest experts? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Want to give a listen to uh, one news outlet uh, issuing a correction uh, related to Gaza. Here's uh, BBC anchor Mariam Mashiri apologizing for an error in their coverage. Now, before we go, earlier on BBC News, we reported on some of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations at the weekend. We spoke about several demonstrations across Britain during which people voiced their backing for Hamas. We accept that this was poorly phrased and was a misleading description of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Now, here's the weather. Lindsay, how important is it uh, for news organizations uh, who want to be viewed as legitimate news organizations to offer corrections, whether of fact or interpretation like that one? I think it's so important. And I, I think that it's it's actually um, admirable when news organizations just, you know, hold accountability, right? They, they take responsibility for themselves and say, we messed up there. I think that in such an incredibly um vexed you know conflict like this one with reverberations throughout the world um you know right here in in madison wisconsin right we're seeing people deeply affected by this on all sides um the the precision of terms and the the preciseness with which we talk about the things that are happening 
is the difference, um, you know, between really causing harm and just telling telling the, the story, right? So I think it's it's vital. And Emily, how about uh, organizations, whether attached to media outlets or independent, devoted to fact-checking? We had this big rise of fact-checking groups, uh, and then they were flooded because then social media came along. Are there are there efforts to do these things that you think are, are paying off? Yes, I think fact-checking from... Uh, professional fact-checking organizations from news organizations is absolutely essential. When I tell people you should be trying to to verify whether something's true or not, that's the first place a lot of people are going. That's the first thing that's coming up in Google search or whatever other search engine you use. And so if that weren't the case, telling people to to search wouldn't be all that useful a strategy. We need them there uh, to make sure that we have the, the information we need to know what's true and false. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Leticia is with us in Racine. Leticia, hi. Hi. What did you want to bring up? Yeah, I just want to let you know that I watch Al Jazeera News because the Western media has done a poor job of uh, giving us Palestinians' side of what's going on. Leticia, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Lindsay, can you talk about at least the the perception uh, often often voiced about uh, bias from Western media outlets when they cover issues uh, in the Middle East? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to talk about that. And you know, I think that it's it's an astute observation um, from our caller that there is a tendency, I think, probably in most um, media, right? Most even news media trained and and sort of originating here in the West to have some kind of a perspective, whether or not it's, it's something that we like to talk about um, or think about ourselves as, as journalists, it is common, I think, to sort of have a history of presenting a story in such a way, right, that, that maybe one doesn't even notice that's happening anymore. And so I think one way around that is to actually try to diversify your news diet and, and sort of look for, you know, is the story being told differently in different news outlets and can you sort of put all of those together to to get the whole picture leticia thanks for that call at 800-642-1234 emily do you have thoughts on how we can diversify our media diet as Lindsay was just suggesting there uh, but make sure that we're not stumbling into uh, less legitimate less worthwhile sources that is a tough question, and that is one of the things social media is supposed to be good for, is giving us a diversity of perspectives. So I think even as much as we're talking about the need to be really careful about our, what we're getting on social media, recognizing there's a lot of misinformation, there is also a lot of value to having a lot of different voices offering their perspective in one place for us. We are talking about uh, covering conflict, uh, including the current conflict in Gaza, and how misinformation and disinformation can spread on social media. Lindsay Palmer and Emily Vraga, both uh, journalism professors with us. Lindsay, I want to talk a little bit about uh, often unsung heroes that you have focused on a lot in your work. We might see the name of the BBC correspondent, a New York Times correspondent. You've uh, focused a lot of attention on their local partners in conflict zones. Can you talk about the roles they play? The local partners in conflict zones are often the people who do the most dangerous work um, in the process of, of covering these stories. Sometimes they do almost the entire uh, job themselves. Uh, they, they translate for foreign correspondents, they help them get interviews, and they also play a security role in the sense that they you know, usually have the cultural knowledge and the linguistic skills 
to be able to tell if if they are in a sort of dangerous situation and that the foreign correspondent actually needs to leave um, the, the site where they are. I think in this particular um, part of the world, there are there, there's a, a long history of um, both Israeli um, local journalists working with foreign correspondents, also Palestinian journalists working with foreign correspondents, um, depending on the conflict and the, the amount of access that's allowed. And so it is absolutely something that's going on now as well. And then there are, of course, the, the local camera people, um, producers, photographers who, as we know, are getting killed. Um, one example is Reuters um, Lebanese photographer Isam Abdallah, who was just killed a few days ago um, with, with the conflict unfolding in Lebanon. Emily, I want to talk about uh, the proliferation of uh, misinformation spreading technology, I guess. Social media platforms, you could make up stuff in print. Now it seems easier to uh, mislabel videos. Now we're getting to the point where we can use uh, so-called AI to make our own videos that look uh, authentic to people who might not know better. Can you talk about how the technology, at least it seems to me, is making things worse and harder when it comes to bad information? I think that's true. Misinformation is not new, and it's been around as mm -hmm. long as people can communicate, but we're able to reach a lot more people with misinformation now through social media and through other sites, and a lot more people can create it in convincing ways. And so I think that it's another space where it really pushes the, the news consumer to be more careful in thinking through where, not just what does this content look like, does it look accurate, is not a really good way to know whether something's true or false. The best way we can do that is by looking across a lot of different sources. And Lindsay, as you watch this current conflict in Gaza, do you have sources you point people toward where, uh, whether it's international correspondence and or local correspondence, uh, where do you recommend people look for for great information? That is such a tough question. And I still certainly think that, you know, it's it's good to be looking for professional news sources as much as possible. Um, you know, there's there's a, uh, as we know, right, there's a, a process by which um, professional journalists are sort of trained um, and their editors are trained to to look at information and and, and make sure that it's accurate. I do think, though, that instead of pointing anyone to one source, I would just say try to try to find as many different professional news sources as possible um, so that you can get the many, many layers of a conflict as as devastatingly complex as this one. Now, I've been talking about misinformation more generally, Emily. Let's talk about disinformation. That's part of the story here where people are actively motivated to try to create a false narrative. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges with disinformation in an international conflict like this? So as you pointed out, disinformation is about having motive, knowing something is false and sharing it anyway because you want to advance some kind of political goal, some financial goal. I think one of the biggest challenges, though, is once it gets to social media, it becomes misinformation. Mm -hmm. The people resharing it mostly believe it, mostly at least think that there's a possibility it could be true. And if it is true, they want to be sharing it with other people. And so that distinction matters a lot for the creators. But when it comes to addressing its spread on social media, it becomes misinformation really quickly when we're dealing with people who are just innocently trying to participate in a conversation. And Lindsay, uh, with any kind of journalism, there's always the question of, you know, how reliable are official sources in this story, all the more so in a war zone? How do uh, war correspondents uh, 
challenge, uh, try to dig into claims, say, by made by the Israeli government or military or by spokespeople for Hamas or the Palestinian Authority? Uh, how can that sort of everyday journalism work in this kind of situation? I think sometimes that everyday journalism can be a little bit harmful in the sense that there is this longstanding tendency to rely and perhaps over-rely, I think, as, as research has shown, um, on official sources. And this is something that communication studies has talked about for decades and decades um, in a number of different conflicts. So I think what's important is that foreign correspondents um, try their best to get the perspectives not only of these official sources, but also of just the everyday regular people who are the ones who are suffering the most, um, get their perspectives in there. And then editors need to make sure that those perspectives make it right into the, the content that people read. We'll leave it there. Lindsay, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you. And Emily, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Emily Vraga is an associate professor at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. And Lindsay Palmer is an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at UW-Madison. They joined us today to help us evaluate news coverage from the war in Gaza amid a flood of mis- and disinformation and to find out how war correspondents do that kind of work in a very difficult situation. Coming up Monday here on Central Time, what does it mean to be a diva? The author of a new book of essays called On Divas looks at the role of these distinctive personalities in the celebrity world, music and movies, politics, and beyond. And as we get closer to Halloween, we'll check out a classic monster, a Wisconsin expert on zombies. Tells us why they've had such a long run and a big role in popular culture. If you have a favorite zombie movie, story, or TV show, let us know about it. Email ideas at WPR.org. That more coming up Monday here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, we'll look at the K-12 education legislation most likely to pass that will affect schools in the coming year. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Wisconsin's state budget passed earlier this year settled a lot of questions for Wisconsin schools, and a follow-up bill on revenue sharing expanded funding for the state's voucher programs. But that wasn't the end of the story for school issues in the state legislature this year. There's a lot of education action for state lawmakers going on this month, including a series of bipartisan bills that would allow the lowest spending school districts in the state to increase their revenue-raising power, a requirement for Hmong and Asian American studies in Wisconsin schools, and already passed, Wisconsin schools will officially change the way reading is taught to emphasize phonics more. Legislation that's less likely to end up becoming law includes a Republican bill on gender, sexual orientation, race, and other issues in the classroom, and a Democratic proposal to phase out school vouchers. We're rounding up some of those proposals now. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a K-12 through student in Wisconsin's public or voucher-supported private schools? What are your thoughts on some of this legislation? Do you have questions about what's going on? Are there changes you'd like to see in the way schools are run or funded in the state? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Rory Linane writes about K-12 education for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Rory, welcome back to Central Time. 
Hey, thank you for having me on. Well, a lot going on. You wrote a roundup of uh, some of the big news there. Let's start with some of the, the bipartisan ideas, or at least ideas with some bipartisan support. I guess some of the least controversial things, no surprise. What are you looking at that seems likely to pass and then be signed into law by Governor Evers? Yeah, um, there's one initiative that's that's moving quickly through the legislature with um, some bipartisan support, and that's around getting some more funding for some of the school districts in Wisconsin that have been um, recently getting the least amount of funding. Um, and so this one's kind of complicated, but um, it goes back to 1993 when state lawmakers decided to lock school districts in at the amount of funding that they happen to be spending at that time. And so that put school districts in, at, you know, into a lot of different scenarios um, where you saw some schools being able to spend a lot of money and others not so much. And, you know, one of the main ways around that was for a school district and still is, is for a school district to hold a referendum to go to their voters and ask for permission to raise taxes. Um, and then another thing to understand is that um, because districts were locked in at these really different levels, um, lawmakers also set a minimum funding level, um, like a floor to make sure that, you know, districts were at least not below that. Um, and then in this past budget, lawmakers decided to bump up that floor to 11000 per student. Um, but there were 19 school districts um, who were below that floor but didn't qualify for that increase because of another state law that says if a school district has failed a referendum, then it can't take advantage of any increases to that floor for three years. Um, so there were 19 school districts in that situation where they, they had the lowest amount of funding, but they had failed a referendum. And so they were going to have to stay at a really low um, funding level. But the bill on the table would um, get rid of that uh, law and then allow those districts to take advantage of that increase. Now, there are some other smaller things. They don't seem like uh, huge pieces of the puzzle here, but uh, some low-income families could get grants for driver's education. Uh, what's uh, what's yeah. going on there? Yeah, um, well, you know, especially with the reckless driving issue in Milwaukee getting a lot of attention, um, this is one area people have looked to as a, a potential um, piece of the solution is making sure that everyone can afford to get that driver's education. Um, so the this bill would put about $6 million toward that and it would give grants of $400 each for um, up to 15,000 uh, lower income students to be able to afford uh, those driver's education programs. I also mentioned a bill uh, passed already in the assembly, I believe, that would require uh, Hmong and Asian American studies in Wisconsin schools, similar to requirements, I think, uh, for other uh, uh, ethnic origin groups uh, in the state. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, there there is already current law that requires students to get educated about certain populations. Um, they're listed as American Indians, Black Americans, and Hispanics. And so this law would uh, broaden that to also specifically include Hmong and Asian American populations. We are talking to Roy Lenane from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, looking at a whole passel of legislation related to Wisconsin schools now uh, in various stages in the state legislature. You can join in with your questions or thoughts at 800-642-1234. I mentioned voucher schools earlier, Roy. uh, There's... Uh, an effort for some Democrats to try to phase out vouchers this after a negotiated deal on the revenue sharing in the state that boosted uh, voucher funding for the state's voucher programs. What's the latest there? 
Um, yeah, so in the in the latest state budget, uh, there there was a major boost to the amount of funding that private schools can get for each voucher. Um, and Democrats, um, you know, I think they've they've tried this before without uh, luck, of course. But uh, their proposal is to phase out that program because they argue that that pulls money away from the public school system, um, and that is not you know likely to go anywhere this session because of the Republican majorities. On the Republican side of things, we've seen a, a series of bills in states around the country that uh, loosely call themselves a parents' bills of rights, parental bills of rights, that sort of thing, related to uh, content that sponsors say is controversial in classrooms. This looks different uh, from state to state. What are we seeing Republicans propose here in Wisconsin? Yeah, so we do have um, our own version of a parental bill of rights being proposed by Republicans here. Um, and I guess a couple of the major um, kind of flashpoints in that bill, one one is that it would uh, require school staff to get parental permission in order to use um, trans students' pronouns. Um, and then another one is that it would allow parents to opt their students out of uh, quote unquote controversial classroom discussions and um, they specifically note that that could include topics such as gender sexual orientation race structural racism and institutional racism um, and uh, Democrats have uh, vo voiced strong opposition to that one. Um, and so with uh, Governor Tony Evers in the office, um, it's it's not likely that that bill would, would make it through either. And it did get vetoed in the last session as well. A similar version of it did. And then back on the uh, Democratic side of proposals, a minimum teacher salary, uh, I guess, uh, pointedly equivalent to what lawmakers themselves get paid. Uh, again, mm -hmm. Democrats in the minority not likely to go far. What are they calling for? Yeah, um, uh, they have a whole package of bills um, to address the teaching profession. And uh, as you said, one of those would set the minimum salary equal to lawmakers, which is currently about $57,000. It would also set a minimum wage for student teachers and um, put some funding toward uh, helping students be able to pay for school to become teachers and i think we lost rory there for a moment we're going to get her back uh, we are talking about education issues in wisconsin state legislature you can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts on the various issues we're talking about a lot a surprising amount related to education given that there was a lot that went on earlier this year you can join the program at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up in just a moment or two here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're talking about current K-12 education issues in Wisconsin's legislature. You can join in at 800-642-1234. We've got Rory Linane back uh, with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And Rory, just one more question I wanted to bring up before we let you go. Uh, a lawsuit uh, filed by a, 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 a brewery owner in northern Wisconsin trying to end the state's voucher school program. What's going on? Yeah, that's right. Um, the Minocqua Brewing Company has its own um, political action committee now. The owner there, uh, Kirk Bankstad, uh, he's a former Democratic candidate for the U.S. House State Assembly um, and has really um, pivoted to uh, a political focus with his brewery and uh, politi 
Political Action Committee. And so they have uh, been asked the state Supreme Court to directly take up their case where they are arguing that the voucher programs violate the state's constitution, um, and specifically the part that uh, declares that public funds should be spent for public purposes. So they're arguing that um, the state funds in these programs don't have the same kind of uh, public oversight. All right, Rory, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad we got you back on. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's Rory Lenane with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Been talking about a lot of education issues in Wisconsin State Legislature. For more analysis now, Alan Borsick joins us, Senior Fellow in Law and Public Policy at Marquette University Law School, longtime observer of schools here in Wisconsin. Alan, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here. Let's start where we just left off there, Alan. Wisconsin School Vouchers Program. We had this uh, this deal reached uh, over the course of the budget process. Uh, Governor Evers negotiated with Republicans, bumped up voucher, uh, the per-student voucher funding for private schools in the state. I don't know. It looked like there might be a truce. We were done arguing about this for a while. Uh, no, not so much. It looks like there's this lawsuit. Democrats and the legislature still working on this. This debate is not over yet. That's for sure. You know, the the, the partisanship, the debate, the, the acrimony, the turf wars, the sector wars over vouchers have been going on since, uh, well, for sure, since 1998 when the Supreme Court allowed religious schools in, but really before that. So it's it's like the longest standing debate this side of abortion in, in Wisconsin. Um and can you remind us of the expansion of vouchers? It started off uh, with advocates in Milwaukee. Uh, now we have multiple voucher programs. Remind us uh, where we are and how we got here. Well, in a couple broad strokes, uh, Milwaukee, uh, the, an, an alliance of, of Governor Tommy Thompson and uh, Annette Polly Williams, who was a state assembly person at that time from the central city and others, made Milwaukee the first place in the country to have an urban uh, school voucher program in which state money was used to pay for kids to go to, at that time, a small number of private schools that were not religious. But over time, the programs expanded greatly. Um, There are now, as you said, four voucher programs in Wisconsin, one for Milwaukee, one for Racine, one for the rest of the state, and one for special uh, special ed kids. And all told, um, I believe it's around 50,000 kids this year are going to school on vouchers, plus another 15 or 1,000 or so that are going to independently chartered uh, charter schools, which are a slightly different horse, but kind of similar. Um, and so that's about 65,000 kids, which is about 8% of the state's school population, if I got my math right. Um, so, the, yes, the program keeps going and growing. It's popular. Um, uh, voucher programs have grown around the country. Charter schools have grown around the country. But Milwaukee's claim to fame is that it was the first. One of the claims or the arguments in this lawsuit, and I think from a Democratic sponsor of this bill looking to scale back voucher schools, is uh, there are different standards of transparency, of uh, performance evaluations, things like that, between these uh, voucher-supported private schools and public schools is that true? And if so, how big a discrepancy is there? It's true. And the, the schools that take voucher students are private schools. On the other hand, you can overstate that. The, the schools have to 
have their at least their voucher students take the state's um, standardized tests, report the results publicly. They have to have a, a, a pretty fair amount of financial oversight. They have to be accredited. So they're not entirely outside of uh, uh, accountability, and, and there's a lot that can be found out about them. But it's not the same as if they had a public school board and all their meetings were open record, subject to open records, open meetings laws. So they are a horse of a different kind. They can be religious in the case of the voucher programs, which public schools, of course, cannot. Mm-hmm. So there, there's still big differences, but it's easy to overstate that. All right. Now, that's the voucher issue. If I had to name, Alan, another uh, education argument that's been running for as long or longer and gets just as heated, it's how we teach reading, uh, especially to young kids. Uh, and now you know, there's the phonics versus whole language, though a lot of people are, are in some kind of middle ground. We settled on something in Wisconsin. There's changes coming next year, bumping up the phonics side of things, as I understand it. Alan, what are we seeing in the works for next year? I think it's a really big deal. Uh, I have not been uh, shy about labeling Wisconsin's overall reading situation a crisis, especially for low-income and minority kids, but nonetheless up and down the spectrum. Um, About a quarter of all kids in the state, according to the results that were just posted last week from the testing done last spring, about a quarter of them test below the basic level in reading. And uh, there's been some recovery in the the overall performance of Wisconsin kids since uh, uh, the dip that occurred with the pandemic. But the scores are still below what they were 2019 and earlier. And if you're talking about low-income urban centers like Milwaukee or Beloit or uh, Green Bay in some areas or other places, the, the... the level of the crisis is great. And this is true nationwide that there's been a lot of dissatisfaction with reading and that uh, there's just so many millions of kids who are just not capable readers. So Wisconsin joined now over 30 states in adopting laws and regulations related to shifting away from what's been called whole language or balanced literacy and emphasizing what's called the science of reading, which the best-known aspect of that is an emphasis on phonics, which is sounding out uh, words letter by letter and sound by sound for each letter. Um, it's a big change. It's not going to be simple. It's not going to have quick results. Some of the, the provisions in it don't kick in for five years, but you're going to see different approaches to reading. A lot of what a lot of school districts have been using for reading curriculum is now literally against the law. It's the so-called three queuing system. Um, you're going to see different uh, 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 training for teachers. You're going to see um, what's going to happen as far as the expectations that scores will improve. Um, it's a big deal in Wisconsin. It's a big deal nationally. And you mentioned this uh, will take some time to uh, roll in. How big a task is it for a school, a district, and a state full of districts to uh, make a big change in their curriculum like that over the course of uh, a, a year for some of the first changes and a little longer for the rest? Well, it's not just a matter of buying a bunch of new textbooks. It, it involves retraining your staff, uh, retraining uh, everyone who's involved in the school, really, to a different way of of uh, teaching kids to read and what's expected from them. The places that have done it well have had uh, really high-quality 
uh, training of their staff. They've had reading coaches who can uh, observe teachers in class and give them advice. They've, they've uh, spent a, quite a bit of money on, on developing the ways to do it. It's not cheap, and it's not quick. I mean, the reason kids are not good readers, curriculum and, and the way they're taught in class is a big factor and can have impact, but it also has roots all over the place, at home, in the broader culture, in uh, the history of uh, years of, of not emphasizing reading in, in, in a big way. So, so changing all this is um, really formidable. It's, it's a, a giant, you know, to use the cliche, it's a giant battleship, and turning around uh, uh, doesn't come easy. Talking to Alan Borsick with the, uh, he's a senior fellow in law and public policy at Marquette University Law School, looking at uh, education issues, excuse me, in Wisconsin's state legislature. Alan, I wanted to get your take now. We've seen, as I was talking to Rory about earlier, a lot of states tackle some version of a Republican bill that's often called a parental bill of rights. Uh, lawmakers, again, in Wisconsin are advancing something like that. Governor Evers vetoed a similar bill in the past. Uh, as you look at this, uh, what do you make of, of the politics of it versus the, the practical interest in what kids are seeing and learning in schools? Well, uh, it's a tough subject because sure. who's opposed who's opposed to parents being involved and invested in the, the success of their kids in school? Everybody's in favor of that. But then what does it mean when it actually uh, hits, hits – uh, real life because you've got parents who are handling this role in a terrific way and you've got parents who are handling it in a way that's uh, uh, counterproductive, that's that's intrusive, <laughs> that interferes with teaching. You've got both. Um, so if you ask me, I wish everyone would sort of take a breath and, and really focus on what's good for kids and especially for their own kids. Um, that said, I don't think anything is going to come out of the legislature, as Rory was saying. Uh, you know, you got this uh, gridlock there between uh, the governor and, and the Republican majority. So nothing much is going to happen as long as we have that situation. Where you're going to see action, and you are seeing action, is at local school boards and in, in, in local communities and parents taking action, sometimes pulling their kids out of school, uh, Schools uh, come in under pressure to, to change what's in their libraries, to change how they treat kids. Uh, a lot of this is taking place at the local level, and a lot of the strategizing by the people who are backing this is increasingly emphasizing the local level. Overall, if I was watching for where important education action is going to take place in the next few months in Wisconsin, I wouldn't look at the legislature or the governor's office. I would look at the state Supreme Court because that's who's going to handle this challenge, which is a very serious matter to the um, uh, voucher and charter programs, or I'd look at local school boards because that's where a lot of that action is going to be. So the, the real emphasis is moving away from the legislature and moving both locally and down the hall in the Capitol to the, to the state Supreme Court. Are there particular districts you have your eyes on right now, Alan, where these issues are, are playing out? Well, the biggest action has been in uh, uh, suburban districts and, and uh, Republican-oriented districts as far as their voting patterns. So places like Menominee Falls, looking in the Milwaukee area, Menominee Falls, Waukesha, um, 
uh, some other communities out in, in Waukesha County uh, have, have elected very conservative school boards in the last couple of years, boards that were uh, were the majority of candidates, and, and they won fair and square in elections, I should add. There, there wasn't like some, uh, you know, mm-hmm. hijacking of the process. Um, but where, where there was a lot of cooperation uh, overtly between uh, Republican uh, activists and Republican Party and and Trump-oriented people and, and the people who were uh, running for the school board. So you have strong conservative majorities in, in a number of these school districts out in Waukesha County um, and uh, to some degree in Ozaukee and Washington counties and then elsewhere in the state. I, my We'll leave it there. Thanks to Alan Borsak with the Marquette University Law School. We also heard from Roy Lenane with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel looking at education issues going on in the legislature and beyond. This is Central Time.